Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Excited today to be joined by Debbie Gibb, who is a strategist and entrepreneur. She's the senior managing director at the strategic arm of the new school that's expanding access to Parsons School of Design. We're going to dive into a lot of her thoughts on the future of education and higher ed, private sector innovation. Before we get to any of that, Debbie, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you, Mike. It's great to have you here. We always begin by asking our guests for their origin story. Can you catch folks up a bit on what got you to this point in your career? Sure. I think I have to start in my childhood briefly that my parents were very focused. I have an older sister on creating independent young women, and it was really a focus on responsibility, accountability, and they really wanted to support us to be able to do things that we they didn't have the opportunity to do growing up. So with that as the backdrop, throughout my career, I don't have a linear career. I have one that had left turns, right turns, and the roller coaster, as I call it. But it was all with the point of I wanted to experience different things. So my Cliff Notes version of all of this is I grew up in Michigan. After I graduated from undergrad, I had the opportunity to go to London, and I went. So with the support of my parents, my philosophy is you just need to know one person before you can move somewhere new. And I knew one person. So off I went, and the only foreign country I had been to was, which was Canada. And when you're from Michigan, that's really yeah. not, I apologize to the Canadians. It's really not like going to another country, but anyhow. So after that, I, I started there working for American Express. After seven years, I wanted to come back and move to, to uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. I started working for a subsidiary of American Express. And from there, I went to um, New York all, all the time knowing one person. Just remember that, Red. So why this is important is it teaches, you know, not only risk-taking resilience, which was fundamental to our upbringing, and, you know, when I had a long career in American Express, I started at a very junior level to very senior roles. And I don't know if it was an interview or it was in her book, but Michelle Obama called herself the box sticker, that she had all these things that were expected. So I was on the Michelle Obama track of ticking yeah. things off of what success was. And, I had, you know, I, you could say on paper I was successful, but I got to a point where I wanted to do something different and I wanted to do something where I could give back. And mm -hmm. that's when I made the decision to just leave my career and really start looking for work in nonprofit. So, you know, it was, I stumbled upon this and this is true. I stumbled upon this position. I didn't know anybody at the university and I just worked very hard to demonstrate that I was the right person for this role. And I mm -hmm. had the skills that the university was looking for, which one would think that being an educational institution, that you could see the transferable skills. One of the bigger things I had to overcome was the fact that when you work for a big company, people think you don't have skills, which is counterintuitive because they're, you're cutting, you have revenue targets, you have you know yeah. budget reductions happening every year. So the goals go up and you have less resources, which is similar to life in nonprofit. You know, since I've been at the university, it's a little over six years now, we've pivoted to, so we build things and then they get integrated into the university. So fast forward to the pandemic, like all universities, the new school was also 
having you know challenges. So my team pivoted and we really focused on ways to really scale. So we are the strategic arm that's really focused on extending the university's brand through education and also figuring out ways to leverage its assets for scalable revenue. Mm-hmm. So with that said, we have three main areas, which is on demand on a learning, which is really extending our access through partnerships with Coursera, 42 Courses, Future Learn, and Yellow Brick. The second area is licensing, and we just launched last week a partnership with Artistory, which is uh, a company that works with museums to license their artwork and create objects. So we have this whole program we're getting ready to launch with our alumni that we're calling designers in residence that will work with us with other museums to create products. The last area is really looking at how we can expand our design education in K through 12. So I have a very small team, uh, but we're very focused and everybody's energized because this is really interesting work. We meet a lot of interesting people and we're out there every day talking to different universities, companies about partnerships, you know, really understanding the lay of the landscape. Yeah. Yeah. And Parsons is pretty well known as a brand out there. It's a place where people think of innovative design, you know, something that's contemporary, something that's keeping up with the pace of New York City. There's a lot, I think, to be attributed to that brand. And then thinking about how you extend that into your online learning, you know, everyone's picking up more upskilling. Folks will want to upskill with design relevant, job ready, sort of maker economy skills. It's a pretty interesting space to be in. And then to your point, the pandemic hitting, you know, it, in a way, as an innovation function, there's no excuse for being taken off guard. You're the folks who are supposed to figure out where the world is heading. And then suddenly everything was changing. Can you describe a little bit what that felt like and what that experience was like? Because I'm older in my career, I've already had to manage through 9-11 in the 2007-2008. So this, I thought those situations and many other prepared me for this. And I think unlike other people who thought that this was going to be over in three months, not that I'm a predictor of the future by any means, but I just knew it wasn't. Right, and right. so I immediately said, we got to prepare for the long term. And you really have to make it into achievable goals or chunks of work. What can we do right now? What is longer term? So it's creating that balance between giving people hope that we can move things forward whatever that looks like. And you really are, you know, there's a lot of ambiguity. So it's really about the testing and learning and things are happening all the time that you have to make decisions on on the spot. What, what, based on what we know, what do we think we're going to do? So it's less of a research project and more of like real time. This is going on. Here's what we need to do. And so it's exciting. And it's also sometimes exhausting, (laughs) but you know, really good team. So uh, I'm very fortunate. Yeah, I found that a lot of folks who I talk to are in innovation, futurist, future-facing kind of roles. And historically, there's been some respect for it, but it's also been a little bit like, yeah, whatever, is that ever actually going to happen? And it does feel like the shakeup to how learning in particular has been delivered over the last couple of years does seem like a bit of a wake-up call to everyone that whether you were in an innovation role before or not, we're all in innovation roles from from this point forward. Any thoughts on that? No, yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think that 
I don't know what the outcome of the future of learning will be. Everybody is in education at the moment, whether you're a company, a tech startups. And I think that people are looking for the silver bullet. I'm not sure there is a silver bullet. I think it still has to be a combination of the government, universities, and the private sector. And I don't think we should be leading with the private sector, although they're, they seem to be a bit more nimble than universities. So they are creating, you know, use Google as an example. You know, they came out with their own certification program on Coursera mm-hmm. and they've already had 70,000 people uh, go through the program and get certified. So I was just mm-hmm. reading a stat that um, the average salary for those folks was like 30,000 or under. And once they finished their certification, the starting salaries are 60 or 70,000. Now yeah. the key is companies that that these are talented people that actually can should be employed so now they've had google's had 150 companies sign up to say that they will accept these certifications and i think the companies have to go through a shift and stop looking for the ivy league degree students (laughs) because there's a lot of talented people out there that didn't have the opportunity to go to ivy league and so there needs to be a whole mindset shift yeah absolutely and it's not like you don't go to Harvard to study Salesforce you know, necessarily, but your first job, that'll pay you $60,000 a year. If you know Salesforce, you'll be ready day one. You're in an interesting vantage point to understand what's going on in higher ed and then also have the background from the private sector. And then interestingly, working with K-12, you know, it does take a, an ecosystem as much as a village. Like it takes different parts of the broader educational landscape. Can you talk a bit about how your vantage point might give you some unique perspective on where innovation can happen and and where you see the world of, of learning today? Yeah, I really, I given the state of the United States and the partisanship and everything being political, I really think it has to start at the local level. Uh, because even if you look at a particular state, you have factions of disagreement, which means nothing ever gets done. But if you look mm-hmm. at the local level, the, the cities are actually empowered to make change. We A partnership with, I want to talk a bit about Newark and their Board of Education, because their superintendent has created a 10-year plan on creating schools that are industry focused because his whole point is he wants to create jobs in the community. He wants to be able to have these students continue to live in Newark and evolve the community into whatever it's going to become in the future. So he has a vision. He's already started for schools, high schools that are focused on industries. We partnered with Newark last year to launch the Newark School of Fashion and Design, where we are creating the curriculum for the fashion and design programs. We are also working to help them identify and hire the faculty, and we do the professional development, not just with the the faculty that are the fashion and design, but also the other faculty. So, you know, as we move forward, the programs can become more integrated, like if you're talking about math or science, there's math and design, just to make sure that the other faculty understand what, you know, the the students are learning. Mm -hmm. And then the third area is really creating experiences with the industry for the students and giving them exposure to our students and bringing them on campus and giving them other opportunities. Now, we only just launched in September. We're now in April. So we have the first cohort of ninth graders is just finishing the first year, but it's, you know, it's incredible. The the principal and the other faculty members of Newark are very 
the leadership is tremendous across Newark. So mm -hmm. these students have already entered two fashion competitions. And this last one, which was to represent Newark, I have to look at the name here because it was the Family Career and Community Leaders of America fashion competition. There were 600 students and the Newark school, they won 12 medals with the winner going to the nationals, which is in California. So, and I'm just trying to demonstrate in a short period of time when you have the, the collaboration, the cooperation and the support, anything's possible. And perhaps Newark, I'm not saying this is not happening in other cities, but Newark is, you have to have these experiments to really start ingraining because where we are right now, I don't see, <laughs> we have ed tech all, we have a whole portion of America trying to make money. Everybody's in K, K through 12. And some of it's super scary when you look at the introduction of AI and trying to determine what somebody's good at six years old. So you're taking away their own personal choice. Don't yeah. put kids on track of what you think they're going to be good at because then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So yeah, yeah. I think there's lots of optimism and I think there should be cautious because technology isn't always the solution. Yeah. It's funny how much design thinking and even fashion is something that is part of the collective consciousness. I like to talk about zeitgeist, like it is almost defining the trends and the period of time that we're in. And, and I'm always struck by how, you know, I have a three-year-old now, how three-year-olds are very fashion conscious. And then I think by the time you're a teenager, you're super fashion conscious, but like you don't talk about any of that stuff informally. There's no introduction to these career pathways until maybe college. And then even then fashion isn't always a career path that people understand they could even pursue in college. So that's where I, I do think that the pathway that you're talking about and how much of some of the design thinking and making things is very much part of what it means to be human. Can you talk a little bit about the connections between education and the ability to make things and, and build a portfolio? Because I do think you're really onto something and it sounds like the results, it's still early, but it sounds like Newark, it's setting itself up for some interesting growth potential there. With the demise of public schools, which means cutting out, like taking away funding and the arts and design were cut as a number one or music, all of those arts are, are skills that are important for humanity and complexity. Right. So you, you learn something new and how it fits in with the environment. So fundamental to Parsons core education, which is what the students are learning is, it's more of this transdisciplinary approach. So you see how all of these different disciplines are interconnected to help, you know, inspire, you know, the making part. So nobody's telling you to make X. It's being exposed to an environment and different contexts and different people and different types of art, whatever that art may be, could be in different mediums and really giving, you know, that exposure and, and encouragement, right? As mm -hmm. Art is only in the eye of the beholder, right? So That's right, right. It's what whoever values art is art. And we just have to look at NFTs, like, you know, right. thought, but... Anyhow, I think that it's super important that you go back to the basics. So you learn the fundamentals of what it is to make, right? It's like you could go design um, like a piece of pottery, let's say, in the virtual world, but do you actually physically know how to make it? And within that context of, you know, the tactile, 
I yeah. think is important. That's what these students are getting and getting real time input of how, you know, and thoughts about what they're doing or help or support. So I think that kind of ecosystem is important, especially not only for high school, but you should start it. You said you have a three-year-old, yeah. you know, in elementary school. It's you've got to bring back the the liberal arts because that's what makes us human. <laughs> yeah. And increasingly what makes us human, if you think about the future of work in 10, 15 years down the road, there'll be more and more things that are routine tasks that are going to be subsumed by automation and by artificial intelligence, leaving a different space to, for us to flex into. And that's why I do think connecting you know, the making, the making arts, the ability to, to physically make things that are of value in the world is a pretty profound and very like fundamental way to understand how you engage. Getting back to the three-year-olds, like it's, they're always making stuff. And then at some point we pull back from that. And that's why it's inspirational for me to see the, these career paths exposed to folks at an early enough age that it might light a spark in someone that will actually set them up for success. And then it's actually true later on in life too. Like for me, I, I need to continue to upskill and stay relevant in, in the skills economy. Any broader impressions from you around this? There is a movement and awakening around going skills-based and mapping skills and competencies to the labor market and then designing like a learning ecosystem that, that helps with those pathways. Any thoughts from you on, on that whole universe? I think that for, I think it's something like, was it 50 million adults have either an associate's or they started a bachelor's, they didn't finish. And so for them to, the way this, we are set up right now, we have to move to make sure everybody can have a job that they want that creates a living wage so they don't have to worry about the, the basics. We have to move to, at, at least for that population, skill-based. I think for the younger population, the Gen Zs, I don't know what your three, what population your three-year-old is in, but yeah. it, the, I think there needs to be a rethinking of fundamentally of what is work. <laughs> and, you know, the younger generations have a way to shape this. The gen, I have a, a nephew who's 18. He has a way to shape the future because he has a different perspective and he grew up, you know, with technology <laughs> at a different degree, even than his older sister. So I think that's important. I think in the short term, there has to be an investment in that, the skills-based. Longer yeah. term, I think we need to look at fundamental different models of how to shake up the big tech <laughs> and get the control out of a few and back to the citizens. Uh, yeah. Because I, people feel this, I don't mean to be political, but I think, you know, you know, creating employee-led co-ops, that's another model that mm -hmm. is deployed in certain situations. That could be different ways of of working where it gives, you know, the employees a bit more say so in, in what they do, or if you're going to take off again, but there has to be a realization to conclude of you, you need to keep upskilling and, and training yourself. And I don't think that people, you know, fully understand or embrace that. Like some of your free time has to, it's about learning, right? Yeah. Yeah. And increasingly it gets built back into when I frequently call learning as a benefit, where I w I'm going to choose to go into an organization that will think about upskilling me and think about building those kinds of packages as much as they're building in a compensation package. There is also a way for me to stay ahead of some of these sort of macro 
job trends so that I'm not left in an awkward position where my job is no longer relevant. And also I skills wise am no longer relevant. That becomes a real problem. That's why Amazon is interesting. Everything keeps coming back to them where Staten Island is unionizing, which is really interesting. And then at the same time, Amazon gets a lot of press for building in its AWS Academy into how it's upskilling and training its own workforce so that even if you work in the warehouse, you could learn how to program in AWS. Sounds like you have some concerns about big tech versus the the alternative. And the alternative is more like the Newark example, like stuff that is more under more local control, maybe mayoral control, and then more innovation. Is that, are those the types of models that you're gravitating towards? I am personally, I'm not saying the university is. I think those are the ones that are what should be focused because that's how you create the the economic hubs for innovation in those in those areas. And you know, I think with the Amazon and like the Walmart has also said they're supporting their employees to get their degrees. It's is it additive on top of everything else? Because I think it's gotten to a point where it's hard work to get yourself from point A to point B. And there are no <laughs> You know, and it's going to be having a family, going to school and working full time. It's not easy. I did it. So I, I yeah. can speak to it, mm-hmm. but you have to, you know, you just have to slug through it. And I think that if you go back to the community after World War II, the government, federal government supported universities, the private se- sector to really innovate mm-hmm. and like universities should really be the hub of innovation because they're not tied to shareholder value or Profits right. to invest in R and D, and then after, you know, it was like post nineteen forty five. That's when they came out with a jet engine, microelectronics, digital computers. Yeah, they were creating more new things. They were using what they had to create jobs at the mm-hmm. local level or at the mm-hmm. state level. And I think yeah. that's we talk about it, but there's little action. Yeah, at, at the national level. So yeah, yeah. I don't yes. think that companies should be. The driving force. I think that the the universities, it's a collaboration. It's not one or the other. Yeah. But then being in an innovation role at a university is an interesting space to be in. And then also those intersection points between, you know, your prior career and then in some ways bringing some of those more innovative and or modern practices that you get in sort of corporate America into higher ed. What's that sounds like a really interesting space to be in. I'm sure it's hard work. We're always trying to give advice to folks who might be curious out there, or maybe some, it does sound like just showing up is a big part of it. And when you were talking about managing through the pandemic, just implicit in how you were attacking that problem is you're going to show up and you're going to solve it. You know, like there's a level to which being accountable and showing up to do not just the sexy, fun stuff, but also doing the hard work of leadership. Any experiences or any advice you'd want to share? I feel like we've all been going through these transformative experiences. You know, from a leadership perspective, I think that you have to lead with empathy. With everything that's been going on, I have a very diverse team. So depending on what's going on nationally, I've got to be aware of what somebody individually might be going through. And Mm -hmm. I think it's just checking in and asking people if they're okay. And giving them a sense that even though you don't know what the future is, you're not losing your job tomorrow, even though I don't know that. 
You know what I mean? So it's creating a sense of security for what you know and, and just managing to that and, and being authentic and really walking your own talk, which is what I try to do. And I have a team that's very local. So if I don't, they, they call me out on it. So it's good. It's I try to, we spoke about this before. I grew up playing competitive basketball. So everything I do is centered around a team. I'm not above them. We're all part of the same unit and how do we flex or whatever skills we need at any given point. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, you know, move the ball around, so to speak, to, to extend the metaphor a little bit. What's out there in the world beyond what we talked about that's capturing your imagination these days? What other, are there other trends that you're noticing? Are there other sort of macro things happening in the world or micro, whatever? This is a free form part of the conversation, Debbie, uh, but anything out there nowadays that you think our listeners would benefit from being aware of? I don't know if there's anything new that I can share with your viewers that isn't already known, but for me personally, I'm really, I'm a gardener and it's really about the environment for me. Mm -hmm. So I think if everybody spent a little bit more time with their families going out in nature mm -hmm. and just looking at the diversity within a forest, that all, as Studies have already shown that has a very calming effect and gets people back to what is important because without the, without the earth, we won't all be here. So I think right. like really, I spent a lot of time gardening and, and that gives me inspiration. That's my main creative space because I don't, I'm not actually a potter or a painter, but I'm a gardener. So that's my creativity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your program is called Endventures. Uh, what do you see on the horizon for Endventures? And then maybe extrapolating that a little more broadly, folks who are trying to run programs like these, like what are they and where do you see that space heading? I see that really it's the K through 12 space with a focus on middle school and making sure that those that population of students has the access to, I'm just going to call it art and design and the liberal arts. I think that's really important. But the government put the federal government put a lot of money out there for K through 12, and you've probably got another two-year runway to take advantage of that. So we are like focused on how we can extend better to the university access in that space. So I don't have full answers for you, but we're in a lot of discussions and it's exciting because it's not all about doing it online and just pushing up digital things to students. It's about how do you create these ecosystems at a local level that, that the community can support themselves. So that's yeah. what we're looking. Yeah. And if that's the part maybe we could conclude with a little more as well as if you could, like what aspects of the program that you're running do you think could be replicated in other places? Because it does seem like you're bringing like an iterative design thinking measure your outcomes, but there's some stuff you're doing at more like a programmatic level with some mission objectives around innovation and embracing disruption. I, I think there's a lot of stuff that's implicit to what you're doing that probably you, you might even take for granted just because you, you seem like you're, you're a high achiever who's just wants to execute on these things. <laughs> But, but can you unpack a little bit of the, that stuff? Because I think those might be some of the takeaways. What about a program? Maybe what mistakes might people make and things that, that you think you might've gotten right over the years? The things that we've gotten right are 
who we selected as partners. We are the partnership arm and then the academic side is the one that creates, you know, the programs. I think, so I think that we've been very strategic about the partnerships to make sure they're true to, to, to the overall, you know, mission and of the university, which is about social justice, equity, inclusion, and sustainability. So that I feel like we've got covered. I think what where we've struggled a bit is change management with, you know, the academic side not necessarily on the K through 12, but there's a framework and this is where there's a natural tension between what a university does and it, and is responsible for and what they're asking us to do, which is an extension, which does have a, you know, for lack of a better term, it has a business framework to it that complements. So I think that area is still a struggle, especially with working with partners outside of the Newark area, but like with Coursera, they have, these are platforms that have their own structure on how to deliver education, which is completely different than how we do it. So that education is still an educational process for my team and the faculty who are involved in creating the programs. And, you know, we've spoken to a lot of other universities and they all go through the same this is not unique to us. There is so it's just about sticking to it and, and just being very clear and transparent about what the process is. And, you know, and not being afraid of mistakes. I think that's, the, if the, you know, there is, none of us are doing brain surgery here. So if there is a mistake, <laughs> you can recover from it. I used right. to say in American, when I was at American Express and like people would come in and there would be a problem and I could, I didn't even know what it was. I could tell they were afraid to tell me. And I'm like, I used to say, are we going to be on the front of the Wall Street Journal? And is the stock price going to drop? If the answer right. to those two questions is no, we can solve it. And it was never any, either of those. So Yeah, yeah. no, it makes, makes a lot of sense. We're getting close to conclusion, Debbie. Wonderful, <laughs> com wonderful conversation. If we wanted to reiterate anything or try to bring it home for our listeners, any concluding thoughts as we're wrapping up? I want to say that I'm, I want to thank you for your time. It's been fun. And I also want to say that, you know, the, the university is really at the crux of making sure that all kids have access to, you know, design education and really creating a more diverse platform. Because as we know, I, this is one thing I didn't say, the design overall doesn't have diversity. So that's one thing that is very important for us to, when we talk about access, is creating these hubs of local hubs of Parsons. There is a sense of an ability for students to learn and become designers of whatever field they choose. Mm -hmm. And that resilient space will still need to have people designing things regardless of what those things may be. Debbie Gibb, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. Thank you. Awesome. And Debbie, just once again, is a senior managing director at the new school, leading the N Ventures, doing some innovation work, expanding access to designs through Parsons School. Interesting stuff going on there. We'll share uh, links to what they have going on the show page for this episode. If you like what you're hearing, write us a review, share the good word. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. <laughs>